MSW Media. So, Asha, how is a federal judge in Texas able to reduce the accessibility of abortion across the entire country? <sighs> it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangatha. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Renato, the Supreme Court has issued an administrative stay on the Texas judge's ruling uh, banning the abortion medication mifepristone. And the parties have been ordered to file their briefs today um, on that case. And this is kind of a complicated case. We, You and I have gone back and forth and we've been consulting, you know, our colleagues who are Supreme Court watchers and experts and trying to understand <laughs> all of the procedural complexities that have brought us to this point. So I feel like it would be helpful to our listeners to kind of walk through What's happened, how it's happened, why it's significant, that and kind of leading up to where we are today. What do you think? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think the first question in everyone's mind is how does one judge in Amarillo, Texas, able to issue a ruling like this? I mean, I think that's a significant question. People are wondering how do you choose to get in front of that judge and how does that judge have that authority? Well, it turns out when there's only one judge in a particular district, if you file a lawsuit there, uh, you can be guaranteed to get that judge to hear the case. Uh, and that's what happened here. This is a group of doctors who uh, filed suit in this particular um, district where there's only one judge. Uh, this judge had i believe um a, you know had been a anti-abortion activist basically before um becoming a federal judge so they very much knew where he stood on this issue and um we'll get to the issue we'll get to the standing issue in a in a bit cuz i think that's worth talking about in terms of you know how how do these doctors have any standing to to bring this case but basically this judge d- decided that the FDA wrongly approved this medication 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, and, and as a result, uh, issued an injunction from its further dispensation nationwide. And I think just as an initial matter, let's just unpack that for a second, because the Dobbs decision from last June, claimed to be returning the decision of whether to make abortion accessible to the states, that this was going to become um, a state issue. You know, you even had people like Lindsey Graham saying, we just belong, we believe this decision belongs in the states. And of course, an unelected federal judge deciding to make 
this medication unavailable in the entire country directly goes against that. And one thing that I learned, by the way, is that this really does affect access to abortion because over half of abortions are um, undertaken using this medication, not through uh, surgical procedures. That was actually a, a new fact that I learned in in researching this. One one thing that I learned from researching this is that the availability of this, of this drug changed dramatically, I believe in 2021, during the pandemic, when the FDA decided to allow this to be sent via mail. Um, and that's one reason why it is such a significant portion of the abortions in this country, because you are able to get it via the mail. You don't have to travel anywhere. And look, in a lot of states, there is very restricted access to abortion, right? So there are certain states where there might be only one or two facilities where you can get an abortion in the entire state. And of course, now uh, there are many states in which abortion is illegal. And so this is a way in which people can potentially find a way to have an abortion and be able to get an abortion if they don't have the means to travel somewhere where they can get a, get, get an abortion in a, a clinic, for example, right? So I think... Or presumably in places where the traveling it's, has been criminalized. Right. That problem as well. So, I mean, very significant in terms of its impact. And I agree with you that, you know, one of the under the things underlying this, the undertone is whether this is really a state issue. I mean, you mentioned Lindsey Graham. Of course, Lindsey Graham's the same guy who proposed a nationwide abortion ban in uh, the United States Congress. So, um, you know, it's, it, it is definitely going to test and we don't know what the Supreme Court's going to do, but it's really going to test the logic of the Supreme Court decision because both the majority decision written by Judge, uh, Justice, excuse me, Alito and the concurrence written by Justice Kavanaugh both, um, really focused on the fact that this would be a state issue. That's not the case. Um, and so I, I you know, to return to sort of originally the point we were talking about, you know, why this this particular judge can make this ruling or issue this ruling. I mean, not I should note that not every case can be brought in Amarillo. There has to be, you know, some reason why, you, you know, typically there has to be some sort of occurrence within that district. Um, and the, the, the person who's being sued, the entity being sued has to, you have to, the court has to have juris, personal jurisdiction over them. In other words, that person needs to have some connection to that district or be, you know, present in that district in some way. But when you're challenging an FDA policy, you can generally, for administrative law, you can generally bring those suits anywhere. And often they're brought like in District of Columbia or someplace like that. Here they're brought in Amarillo, I think, certainly for the reasons you suggest. And one of the big issues there, um, you know, that's part of the, you know, I think the criticism that the judge is getting for that ruling is the issue of standing, which uh, I think is an important one that you, that you were, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Before we get to that, I just want to talk about the substance here, which is that the judge essentially second guessed the FDA's decision based on his determination that uh, mifepristone incurs side effects that are dangerous. Um, and I think like that in and of itself is incredibly problematic because, it, I mean, I have to wonder like what expertise this judge has to um, 
I guess, look at medical studies and, and make that determination when we have an entire agency that is dedicated to doing that. Um, but also that his conclusions are really factually incorrect and that this is a incredibly safe drug, safer than many other drugs, for example, like Viagra. Um, and, you know, I think this opens the door to, are we now in a place where random federal judges can just decide to second guess um, the FDA and just take entire drugs off the market? So I think there's this whole other Pandora's box that the substance of his decision opens up. And it's part of the reason that the pharmaceutical companies are, um, you know, the, are appealing Mm-hmm. Um, this decision as well. Yeah, one of the main pharmaceutical companies involved here, I think there's two manufacturer, manufacturers, Mifepristone, one of them has intervened. You know, obviously there's a lot of problems, and we're going to get to some of them in a minute about standing with the judge's ruling. But one thing I do want to point out, and I think is interesting, because I think people listen to this podcast because they like to understand the complexities and the sort of the back and forth regarding this. I mean, when you and I were in law school, Asha, there was a lot of praise from progressive professors who I think were kind of came of age in the 60s for judges making factual determinations from the bench and essentially intervening to um, overturn the um, the um, decisions of democratically elected officials, in part because of the experience of the civil rights era, right, where you had racist policies that were being enacted by not only school districts, but all sorts of governmental bodies and having a nationwide injunction or, or a district-wide injunction coming from a federal judge who was looking at data and so on um, was, you know, there were certain circumstances in which that was um, very appropriate, and I think it was emphasized. Um, but I think we're starting to see the flip side of that now, which is someone, like you said, I think relying on data that it, to be charitable is um, um, misleading data, incomplete, um, not you know entire, not accurate, um, and is reaching decisions that have an impact on millions of people across the country. Uh, you know, essentially, uh, um, overturning not only, like you said, it's not only a democratically elected body, but this is a, I think, a an agency of scientists and, and medical professionals. Yeah. And I think that's the key here. Um, uh, you may have been paying more attention in administrative law than I was, but I'm not sure what specific, um, cases you're talking about that, that our professors were, were lauding, but I do think there is a fundamental difference between, say, policies that impact people's civil rights, which I think an ordinary person or a judge is at maybe especially well-suited mm-hmm. to uh, review and things that require specific training and expertise. Um, and I would say that an evaluation of the efficacy and safety of drugs is one of those things. And that's why we have an entire agency devoted to it. So, um, so the standing issue, I think, is the, the other um, problematic point here, which is that this is brought by an alliance of doctors who say that they have an interest in this issue because 
they may be asked to prescribe this medicine. I think that's the idea. And, you know, they feel weird about doing that. And, you know, the standing, which we've heard come up in different contexts over the last several years, um, standing refers to the fact that you have to have a particularized injury from the law or policy that you are challenging. Um, so, you know, you have, there has to be some direct connection between what you are litigating and how it impacts you. And here, the connection between the dispensation of mifepristone, um, and its side effects or whatever, and these doctors seems incredibly tenuous. Yeah, I mean, I think one, that, that's a very important point, Asha. You know, the reason, just so everyone listening understands, the, this idea of standing, a doctrine of standing, is because federal courts, um, and courts in general, but, but federal, uh, just to focus on federal courts like this one, you know, there's, they're supposed to be, um, hearing when there's ca- what's called cases and controversies, when there's an actual dispute between two people or two entities, they're not like freestanding policy uh, uh, makers. So they're not supposed to be just uh, giving their opinions on in real time. Like, hey, you know, you don't like uh, the bathroom someone's using? Well, like go to go to go to court and get a judge to give a thought about that. It's not supposed to work that way. What's supposed to happen is you're supposed to actually have suffered an injury, for example, in order to be able to be someone who can bring a lawsuit complaining about it. Because the whole purpose of these civil lawsuits is to make someone whole from an injury or prevent injuries to people, make, you know, people whole for, you know, harms that they suffer. And here, this group of doctors, they're essentially, their argument is that statistically, if you allow these drugs to continue to be distributed in the way that they are, that statistically they will, in their hospitals, be able, you know, be forced to treat some people with serious injuries. That does, that appears to not be factually true based on everything that I've read. Okay. It just appears to be straight up false. But even putting that to the side is an odd argument because, of course, the job of doctors is to treat people who are sick. It's sort of like if I was complaining as a lawyer that more people might need my legal services. Um, if, uh, you know, if a particular law was enacted, that would generally be a good thing for me as a lawyer. So it's, it's sort of hard to understand completely what the harm is. It's very um, uh, tortured, uh, tenuous, I think very problematic. Yeah. I'm thinking as you're saying this, that I suspect that doctors have to treat the side effects of say smoking, um, you know, more, more so than the side (laughs) effects of mifepristone and tobacco is, I think a substance that would be approved by the FDA. (laughs) Could a judge come in? Probably not. Um, overrule the approval of tobacco uh, and ban the sale of cigarettes across the country? Yeah, it's a great question, right? I mean, I, it's it's sort of bizarre. And I, 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 like I said, I don't even know if it's an injury, right? I mean, it might be a benefit to your particular hospital or your medical group, right? Uh, and, yeah, it's and giving you, you have more people to treat. <laughs> exactly. It's right, that's you. what I mean. I, it doesn't even make sense. I, I don't even understand it. If you tell me more people are getting arrested and they need my legal services, well, that's that's not an injury to me. Maybe it's a bonus. So, I mean, it's not. I don't. I'm, that's crass way of looking at it. But I'm just saying, from purely from the purpose of standing law. I don't know what my particularized harm would be. Right. Um, so it is like uh, 
I, I think you make a great point that it's not even clear that it's a harm to their particular interest, except like I said, unless it just makes them feel sad or something. Uh, but really, you know, it's sort of a circuitous to the extent that there is an injury, it's circuitous that, you know, some other patient incurs some side effects, which may or may not be traceable to this drug, and then they have to treat it. Um, and then I think the third issue here is the statute of limitations, which comes up, um, mm-hmm. right, sure. which is that this drug was approved over two decades ago. Um, and so... Right. early, I think Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the question is, you know, and, and and in administrative law, like when these drugs are approved, there's like an entire time period in which there's like notice and comment and people can object and appeal and do all kinds of stuff. Um, again, Renato, you may have been paying more attention in administrative law than me. So you can feel, you can feel free to unpack that. But after that window passes, you know, presumably the statute of limitations has, has gone. Now there have been ongoing modifications, um, so-called REMS, um, and I forget the exact, uh, what, what that acronym stands for, but it, um, gets to the additional restrictions or rules around how the drug, even after it's been approved, can be, um, dispensed or distributed or what the requirements are. And I think one of those, Renato, as you mentioned, was the, during COVID, you know, allowing for, um, it to be, mailed. Um, and those, I think, become separate instances, which then, you know, push beyond the approval, you know, you can challenge those individual restrictions with within a shorter time window. Yeah, it's a very important point. Because before this went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court's uh, stay, I think, was very short. Uh, it, was, it was very limited in duration. There, the the parties initially went to the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is where I clerked many years ago. And the judges there kind of did what you might think of as a split the baby sort of um, sort of ruling, but it's still very problematic. Um, and they still kind of r- rubber stamped that standing analysis that we talked about earlier. But one thing that they do in they do. Um, have as a difference from the district judge, the, the initial judge in Amarillo is they said they, that there was a statute of limitations issue. And so it would essentially, that means is that the drug could still be sold in the United States. However, you know, some of the more recent developments like the ability to distribute it via mail would be um, would be overturned by that ruling. So still very problematic, still would have a major impact, but would have a lesser impact than it orig- we originally thought it might have, which would basically mean that that drug was not available, even if doctors uh, were trying to prescribe it in person. Right. Now, to complicate things further, <laughs> meanwhile, back at the ranch, um, another judge who presumably... Um, had been teed up by people who, uh, by um, attorneys general of many states in which abortion is legal, um, and who saw what was coming down the road in Amarillo, had basically filed suit in Washington state. Um, and, right. And that decision came down right after Judge Kismarik's in. Amarillo. And do you want to unpack that one? 
Yeah, and that's an important point. I would just say strategically, people kind of often don't understand or wonder about why lawyers make certain choices. I think strategically, it was a very savvy choice uh, to have to bring that issue before a judge in a different state and have that judge essentially issue an order that is somewhat contradictory or significantly contradictory to the order in Amarillo because it shows to the United States Supreme Court that there's a problem with this sort of uh, permitting this sort of thing to go forward because everyone's going to be going to their favorite judge in their favorite state and getting ruling that could impact the entire country. And it's not really a proper use of our judiciary. It's also, um, you know, I'd say uh, uh, something that's going to create a lot of work and hassle for the Supreme Court, which um, it's, you know, judges always care about their own interests in their own dockets. So that's the first thing I, I'll say about it. But the second thing is that ruling essentially, if I recall correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ash, I believe what it does is it constrains the FDA from doing anything that would restrict the access of mef- uh, mefepristone. So that you know, obviously is in very significant tension to put it mildly with, uh, Judge Kazmierich's ruling and Amarillo, because obviously some of the things that he, he's ordering there would, uh, con- contradict that order. And the FDA now can go in courts. And I think rightfully so is saying, look, we can't, we're being told by two different judges to say two different things, which is, like I said, it definitely a better litigation position for them to be in. But separately from that, the one thing that's interesting, though, of course, is that there are some ways in which um, Judge Kazmierich's order in Amarillo, you know, even as modified by the Fifth Circuit, still is operational to some extent because the Washington uh, court's order doesn't completely negate what he was trying to do because there are some things that the FDA um, doesn't have to take action on that nonetheless may restrict access to that drug. Right. So... Again, because this is complicated, I'm, I'm referring here because I want to get it right. Um, so this is Judge Thomas Rice in the Eastern District of Washington. And that case was brought by 18 blue states. And what they were seeking is to block, we talked about REMS, those restrictions that kind of come up or, you know, uh, regulate how the drug is dispensed. Um, that in 2023, the REMS for uh, mifepristone uh, included a pharmacy certification requirement. So that's the basis on which they were challenging. They were saying, you know, we don't, we want to block that restriction. Um, Rice's ruling did not, uh, enjoin the 2023, uh, REMS amendment. But what it does is it prevents the FDA from imposing any further restrictions on the drug. Importantly, um, his, his is not nationwide. He limited his relief to, uh, the six, to the states that were bringing this case. So the 16 states mm-hmm. plus DC. Um, and so you can see how this creates like a big problem, right? Uh, the Texas judge has this nationwide ban that basically says, I'm undoing the approval from the get go. Um, and then you have this Washington judge who says, you know, I guess is operating on the assumption that this is an approved drug. And by the way, the FDA cannot take any more steps to restrict its access. And so, you know, the, what a mess, what a mess. Um, this is, you know, obviously something the Supreme Court is going to have to resolve. Um, and just so people know, like, you know, 
ideally, you're not supposed to have these sweeping um, decisions, right? Our our judicial system is built around this idea that you you may have similar issues brought up in different courts. They may rule slightly differently. And, you know, you end up with, um, you know, these courts are sort of supposed to be acting as laboratories to figure out the right answer so that by the time an issue may get up to the Supreme Court, they have a really good, robust, um, you know, uh, swath of jurisprudence to really look at, see how judges have approached it, and they can come up with something that is reason. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily always the case that it's crazy for two different courts to rule differently on a similar issue. It's just that this happens to be um, a policy issue of nationwide importance, and the judge uh, here has made the ruling applicable to everyone in the country. And so that's what's kind of creating this insanity. Yeah, I mean, it is insane. I mean, I think it's fair to say that that is exactly what the litigants wanted here in Amarillo, Texas. They filed there and they sought this relief precisely because they were trying to affect nationwide change via a, you know, random lawsuit in Amarillo, Texas. And, you know, litigation does have that purpose at times, but I will just say, I think that judges are what would be wise and are wise to have um, uh, a humility about their role. And judges are best when they um, are trying to, you know, be prudent about how they exercise the power that they have and exercise only what is necessary to, you know, remedy very specific wrongs in front of them. And, you know, certainly there are times when judges have to invalidate democratically elect, you know, laws that are passed by democratically elected bodies because they're unconstitutional or they're violating someone's rights. But I think, um, you know, it is, it's certainly a problem when we got judges doing things like we, we just saw in this case. It's just not the way that, that the policy should be made in the United States. I'm old enough to remember when judges who did this were called activist judges. Yeah, Pepperidge Farm remembers. Pepperidge <laughs> so, Farm yeah. remembers. <laughs> so just to, just to bring this full circle. So basically now there has been an administrative stay placed on Judge Kismarek's ruling while the parties briefed the Supreme Court. And what what happens now? The practice is that in a particularly significant case like this, that the, the application is going to go to the entire court, right, uh, for consideration. And so we're going to have a vote soon by the United States Supreme Court that I guess will determine whether or not this is going to be placed on hold and heard by the United States Supreme Court or potentially leaving the Fifth Circuit's ruling in place while this is considered by the court, which would restrict access to Mifepristone, and not completely because it would still be available in person from doctors, but I think it would have a very significant impact on access to abortion, particularly in states that either have a banned abortion or have just severely restricted access where, you know, for example, it's technically legal, but there's only one or two, you know, in-person facilities in the entire state that, that uh, provide those services. So stay tuned. 
Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeyal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-row anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzz Kills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Asha, this week um, we have had yet another national security case. Um, this one by kind of a dumbass, right? I mean, this is not like some sort of um, major spy or... Um, uh, you know, some, you know, a, pre- a former president of the United States. Uh, here we've got some guy, young kid, 21 years old, trying to impress his gamer buddies on Discord. I, I use Discord. I'm a gamer, love gaming. Uh, probably shouldn't be distributing national security secrets to your buddies on Discord. Yeah, this case is really interesting. When I was having my Substack office hours last week with my class, um, before we knew who this person was, we were discussing it. And I, I said, you know, I'm very interested in understanding this individual's motive mm-hmm. because based on the kinds of things that have been released, there doesn't seem to be any like a coherent, um, reason. It's not like, this surveillance program, you know, that I'm exposing of the U.S. government. It was just sort of a, a hodgepodge of different, very sensitive intelligence relating, um, a lot of it relating to uh, the war in Ukraine. And I think that now that we know that this person, Jack Texera, was basically trying to show off in this chat room, um, right. kind of get, trying to get their, you know, um, admiration of these other individuals in this, um, on this gaming site. It's really interesting because it's sort of a narcissism that's at play, right? Like this person, mm-hmm. I don't know if in his real life he feels unimportant or, um, you know, but, but in this little world, he was looked up to as the leader and somebody who had all the knowledge. And in, Intelligence, there is this idea, there's this acronym called MICE, that people who um, are vulnerable um, to potentially for recruitment by foreign intelligence agencies are motivated by money, ideology, coercion, or ego. And I think, you know, ego is at play here, but it's in a kind of a new way of like the narcissism that I think is engendered through growing up in a world where everything is about how people online respond to you. Um, and it's kind of a weird new national security threat in a way. I'll add that the other piece that was alarming to me about his motivations um, or kind of his um, ideology really is he apparently this, this chat room I think was uh driven by a lot of racist beliefs. Um, Texera himself uh, expressed racist and anti-Semitic beliefs, as well as anti-government beliefs. And I think it really points to a problem we have about extremism in the military. And that's something that we've uh, seen over and over again. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, it also, I think, um, 
points to, I, th- I think, the uh, the youth of our military. I mean, one thing that was interesting to me is as soon as this became public, a lot of people were like, how does the kid who's 18, 19, whatever he was when he first got access to this stuff, have access to such important classified materials? And there was a lot of ex-military folks who spoke up. Charlotte Clymer was one of them, but many others who were like, hey, the military is very young. When I was 18 or when I was 19 in the military, I had access to stuff like this. And that's just how the military is. Most people in the military are in their 20s or 30s. They don't look like these grizzled. Uh, like Charlotte told, told me that the grizzled colonel you see in these movies, uh, the commanding of platoon is not real life. Like in real life, a colonel might be in their early 40s or something. So I, I think it's interesting because, look, I, I mean, you know, you have – teenagers, I believe. I have a, a, a teenage stepdaughter and her friends and her occasionally do uh, foolish things. So, um, you know, te- it's not surprising entirely that a teenager might do something stupid. Here, I agree that he's influenced by extremist ideology. I mean, I think that's a problem with our sort of online world right now in general, right? I mean, this extremism that has been really, I'd say, cultivated by the right is uh, exploding online too, not just in the military, but online through, you know, right wing memes and so on. And I mean, it's worth knowing, noting that Mr. Teixeira, even after being arrested in his home by the FBI, is being defended by the likes of Donald Trump Jr. and Marjorie Taylor Greene as some sort of, you know, right wing hero. Uh, when it doesn't appear to me, while yes, he, he was anti government and, uh, or, you know, had some, uh, expressed some racist views. It seems to me like he was not really an ideologue, ideologue, but more of like a young kid. Like you said, ego is the right uh, term in your fancy acronym, which is this is a kid who wanted to impress his friends. And some people might drive their, their dad's car and wreck it to impress their friends if you're Ferris Bueller's uh, uh, friend or something. But here it's like, uh, here's someone distributing our national security pr- uh, secrets. And I think he's going to pay a very significant price in terms of a prison sentence and a felony conviction for his bad choices. Yeah. I'm not really sure what is driving the defense of him um, from these people on the right, except that maybe it's another way to suggest that this is a Biden, you know, this is happening under Biden's watch, or um, it also helped Russia, you know, and we know that one common thread among these people, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump Jr., um, is that they're very pro-Russia in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And it really exposed a lot Mm -hmm. of what we know. I mean, in the first rule of intelligence is never let your adversary know what you know. Um, So it not only gives them an advantage in the substance of them understanding how we view and our, and our allies view um, the war and its weaknesses and, you know, vulnerabilities, et cetera. But they also can look at the specific intelligence and potentially reverse engineer where it came from, which can put sources and methods and even lives in danger. I think it's really interesting on the age point, because I think the age and the anti-government beliefs kind of intersect, right? Because mm. imagine that, you have somebody who's super patriotic, you know, that helps to um, inculcate, even if they're young and have access to this, that this is something that needs to be protected. For mm-hmm. someone who's young, who may not fully appreciate the ramifications of this and who doesn't believe in the goals of government. I mean, like this is someone who did not fully believe in the oath he took um, to even be in the military. Then you can see like that 
he doesn't really see the downside to exposing this. You know, um, he believes that it's fine to take matters into your own hands and show the truth to his gaming buddies or whatever. Um, so, or at least like self rationalize in that way. So I think it's like a real big problem that um, the military needs to deal with. The other thing I'll say is, you know, this is sort of the downstream effects of what happened after or kind of the reforms that were made after 9-11. I mean, 9-11 mm-hmm. highlighted that we were not sharing intelligence quickly enough, um, you know, widely enough. And so a lot of what we have put together since then are mechanisms to ensure the flow of um, intelligence and information across agencies, across the military, which means that there's more eyes than ever before on these sensitive secrets. It may have been a time where this would have just been on hard copy in some room that only grizzly generals <laughs> would have seen. Um, yeah. But then, you know, that meant that other people in the FBI or CIA or NSA like would not see it. And so, um, and because this involves technological infrastructure, I think you have more of these IT guys that are, you know, or women like involved in, um, in the infrastructure uh, of allowing this intelligence to be shared. So I think, you know, it's how many people have top secret clearances now? I think like 3 million um, mm-hmm. in our government. Like that's crazy. I mean, and, and by the way, that doesn't mean they all have a need to know and they all are allowed to see everything. Cause I think that's another issue is, you know, are, are people seeing things that they really have no need to know? Yeah. A uh, really interesting question. That's why, I mean, it, you bring a perspective here as somebody who did counterintelligence work that, that I don't, I think it's fascinating. I, I think, you know, one, just to hook on one thing you said, I mean, you mentioned why you, it's like, why are these people going so hard at defending um, Mr. Teixeira? I think one reason why is because it, you know, goes into this narrative they have that the FBI and DOJ are being weaponized against Republicans, right? It makes the Trump seem like he's part of a pattern, right? Like, oh, they're going after him for criming. Um, and this guy, uh, you know, he's just because he's a, you know, anti the Ukraine war. I mean, that was the way Donald Trump Jr. is trying to spin it. This guy was against the Ukraine war, so they're going after him. Uh, not really. They're going after him because he's a dumbass who distributed classified documents on his gaming discord, but. Um, you know, it is what it is. I mean, for what it's worth, uh, just I'll say sort of bringing, you know, my experience to this, I do think a judge will take into account his age. Judge is going to take into account the circumstances of the offense. Judge, any judge has to under statute. Um, and I suspect, uh, a sentence of somewhere in the, you know, let's say two to nine year range. Um, you know, mm-hmm. a, f- a friend of mine who uh, actually he tweets under secrets and laws on Twitter. We were talking about mm-hmm. it. He thought in the higher end of that range, I think maybe more in the lower end of that range. And so we'll see which of the two of us is right. But nonetheless, very significant uh, sentence and life changing for a young person who is a convicted, then a convicted felon and spending some time in federal prison. Yeah. And it, one thing that I rem- I noted was he totally knew what he was doing was wrong because as soon as he learned from his chat group that these had gone into the broader world beyond that group, he was like, I'm screwed. And he knew that they were going to find him. So, um, yeah, I'll be interested to see what happens. Um, too bad this guy threw his life away. Yeah. Too bad, not just for him, but for so many people who potentially had their lives endangered by the distribution of that content. Completely. 
So, Renato, <laughs> before we go, um, we had a request to talk about some of our favorite TV, like crime shows. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I have to tell you that in the last couple of weeks, I started watching Night Agent on Netflix, which started out promising, but I had to, I gave up within three episodes because it's just, it's more of like the conspiracy thing. Like, you know, there's some conspiracy in the White House and, and, everybody's getting too close to the truth. You know, every time somebody gets too close to the truth, they, they die. And, um, you know, is it the CIA? Is it the uh, secret service? Is it the white house chief of staff? And I'm just like, I'm so over it. Um, though now, whenever I, now I pick up pancake and I tell him that he's getting too close to the truth. <laughs> Sounds almost sinister. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, here I'll, I'll tell everyone a secret, uh, Instead of a secret, I mean, I, there are so many law shows out there, and I and I'm sure you see, you have a similar experience because you're in the FBI, and there's all these FBI shows, right? Like class of whatever. There's always feds, rookie feds, right? There's tons of shows about FBI agents, but there's lots and lots of shows about prosecutors and uh, federal prosecutors investigating crime, and most of them are like total BS, right? And it's very hard for me to watch the shows <laughs> because every time I watch them, I'm like, I remember there was one time and my wife was laughing. It's like, I want to like, like objection. Like I was saying objection from the other room. Cause she had something on. This was during COVID and I'm like objection, you know, from the other room. Cause it was what they were saying was totally improper. It's just, it's almost comical. Like when you watch law and order and like the, 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 you know, the, the putative defendant, if it defendant or, you know, the person who's going to be accused is taken is in some conference room with the prosecutors and then he just confesses everything, you know, to the prosecutors. It's just absurd. Um, so it's hard for me to take it seriously. Now, one, one show that I watched after I already had been a, a federal prosecutor investigating narcotics trafficking that still had a big impact on me was The, the Wire. wire. I've, yes, I've, I've, because, I've not watched it, but I've been told to. Yeah, that's a ridiculously good show. I mean, that's like a work of art, like a novel or something. And that's like a true work of art, that show. Um, but, you know, it's, it's state court prosecutors. There are certain things where I'm like, come on, did they really, you know, could they really prove PC? Or we would never interact with a judge that way. But I, I can't completely judge how, you know, state practice would be in Baltimore. But it, it was nonetheless, there was a lot of truth to it it was trying to be um an interesting and but yet re, you know a, a show that revealed a lot so i thought that show was just absolutely exceptional one thing that's really hard for me to watch probably the hardest thing for me to watch um and that's probably subject of a whole other uh episode is true crime because um somebody spent a lot of time investigating crime it just it some of it hits too close to home for me yeah um, so I'm with you. I, I do not watch a lot of, uh, FBI shows. I never watched, I mean, I wasn't in the FBI then, but I never watched X-Files. Like, that's not what got me interested in the FBI. Um, what else? Um, somebody, I started watching Homeland and I had to, I, I cut it out after the first 
episode because it's like Claire Danes is CIA um, and she like wakes up a judge in the middle of the night and asks for a FISA order and I was like this just makes no sense to me and I can't deal with this so um, that was how <laughs> see <laughs> yeah um, exactly it, it's just so dumb you know what I mean I was like you can't even it's so dramatized like, it was oh unnecessary like why why would you just make it so inaccurate like that so um, I will say the one show that I loved um, that I think, you know, really conveys, I think, the heart of what counterintelligence is about is uh, The Americans. I love that show. I ah, thought it was really well done. I watched well the first done. couple, yeah, couple years yeah. of that or seasons and, of that. That was very know, good. You know, it's Hollywoodized. Um, the FBI generally, you know, does not extrajudicially kill people or, you know, sleep with their sources <laughs> or pass classified information to um, Russia, you know, but uh, overall, I think it captured the the vibe of the spy versus spy thing. Um, yeah. And I think it was uh, the storyline, which was really more about the relationship of this KGB couple was really interesting. Um and which is based on, by the way, the uh, the illegals program um, that uh, the Department of Justice busted back in 2010. Um, the other, this is tangentially related to counterintelligence, but I still think it's a really good sh- good um, series. Is Turn Washington Spies? Hmm. Oh, I've never seen that. It's really okay. good. It's about like the Culpeper spy ring um, during the Revolutionary War. That's super interesting. Yeah, Americans, I totally could see that. And by the way, the whole point you mentioned, capturing the essence is sort of what the wire does for drug investigations and prosecutions. I, I a couple kind of off the wall things that I will say is, you know, my cousin Vinny's cross examination is actually used a lot of times to trial ad classes as a way of. It's like a funny way to talk about it because it's actually quite like some of the the questioning there is quite good and i do think legally blonde is kind of fun and there are some truths in that right that's like a fun oh, i'm glad law. you brought up legally blonde um i used to use legally blonde when i was a dean of admissions at yale law school i would tell admitted students that that scene could only have happened at yale law school because <laughs> connecticut like allows first-year law students to appear in court under the supervision of an attorney, and Massachusetts does not. Um, And so, you know, that was just a whole propaganda thing for Harvard Law School. Yeah, what was up with that? I mean, come on. If she had that great of an LSAT score, she would have gone to Yale anyway. Right. Anyway. M-S-W-Media.